0: hey shedsters happy today whatever day it is where you are and welcome to the holy shed which is situated here in sunny somerset and you know what do you know what i like best about this place apart from the fact that it can be as scruffy as i want it to be you even can't see it can you um but what i really like best about it is it's a place where you can say what you think You know, more to the point where I can say what I think. No one's listening at the door, as far as I know. There's no church authorities hiding behind the flip chart over there or behind one of the bookshelves. I mean, yeah, it's true that the area bishop uh, is outside bobbing around in the garden. Uh, But you know, I don't think she cares what I say. She's got her priorities right. She said to me the other day, Dave, as long as you stay in your shed and don't go spreading your weird messages all over the place, it'll be fine. (laughs) Only kidding, really. She loves the holy shed. Listen, this is her singing the praises of the holy shed, I think. I mean, look, she, she could be telling me off in Robin, but I think that's a hymn to the holy shed, don't you? Oh, and by the way, look at this, which we saw this week, down on the coast, bobbing around on the rocks. It's only a freaking wheat here, guys. I haven't seen a wheat here in years and years. And such a... Look at the little legs. Such a delicate little precious. And, you know, they were all... there was. I don't know, there was at least half a dozen of them bouncing around, finding whatever they found to scrabble around at in cracks in the rocks. And, you know, when they just stay there long enough for you to just concentrate your lens on them, what a pleasure that is. But anyway, getting back to what I was saying, um, it's always puzzled me why there is this problem with questioning things in church, why some people, you know, go apoplectic at the idea that you're taking a different view to the commonly held view or the authorised view of this particular church. Uh, It seems amazing to me that there is such a kind of heavy-handed requirement that you believe what really amounts to, at times, six impossible things before breakfast. I mean, you should at least be able to say, I'm not sure about that one. (laughs) Or better still, shut the front door. Are you seriously asking me to believe that? Anyway, this here, this holy shed, is basically the naughty step, you know, where you can ask, doubt, disbelieve, whatever, and still find that your place is reserved here. Even if you disagreeing with me, by the way. I sometimes want to just stand up at the back of a church and say, people, it is OK for you to engage your God-given brain in church. Because some people, you know, have massive brains and they you know, work in all kinds of spheres of life where they use critical faculties and so on, maybe educationalists or whatever. But there's something strange about coming through the doors of a church, entering the church sort of frontier that it seems as if you you hang the brain up at the door sometimes and uh, I just want to say to people look you are not supposed to arrive at the pearly gates and hand in a theological brain hardly used you know (laughs) still got lots of miles left in it I think we're supposed to you know go back to God with a brain that's nearly worn out because, but is still excited and getting going because we've engaged our thoughts, our critical thoughts and ideas so much. I mean, look, I'm not trying to be a troublemaker. Well, maybe just a little bit. I am certainly not trying to undermine anyone's faith. I'm just wanting to say it is okay to think and doubt and question, to live with a bit of don't know in your head. Because I've got some whole great, you know, fields of don't know up here in my brain. And I'm perfectly comfortable with that. God is mystery, after all. Okie dokie. So it's time to pause for a minute and light a candle. For all those people, I think, in our world who really aren't allowed to express an opinion. Who live under dictators or totalitarian regimes or... Or who work um, in places where the boss does not like them to, you know, cross what he or she is saying, you know. Um, People who suffer in silence uh, in their own homes through domestic abuse because they find it too hard to say what it is that they think. For people who are gagged in all kinds of ways by all kinds of bullies. Will you please join me in lighting a candle for all these people right now? Maybe you know such people. Maybe you feel you've been gagged yourself. Then light it for your own self as a statement of determination that you're going to speak your truth. is a prayer. God grant us serenity to know that even when our voices are silenced they are heard. Courage to speak our truth even when it's not welcome. And wisdom to find the right time, the right voice in which to speak. Amen. Okay, well, Excuse me, among, among other things, this week I went to speak to a curate's retreat. Uh, I think there were about 17 curates from across Europe uh, working in what's called the Diocese in Europe, in different parts of mainland Europe. And uh, they were gathered here in this country for one of their retreats to think about, actually, it was focused all about uh, uh, preaching and, and ministry in the church. And uh, and I was asked if I would come and speak, and it was a lovely, lovely time. I loved it to bits. and overwhelmingly, I have to say, is <laughs> partly why I enjoyed it. The people who were there seemed to welcome what I had to say, wholeheartedly. There's always someone, of course, and there was this one particular guy, who seemed to be upset because he couldn't disagree with me at the end of the first session as we went into the second. And I said, "How are you sitting with all of this? How are you doing? You know?" And he said. Um, he said, well, you haven't really said anything we could disagree with yet. So I thought, well, <laughs> I don't think that was on my to-do list, actually. Um, so I said, well, what, why, why do you think that? So he said, well, I've been looking you up on the internet. And he was sort of moving on from there. And I said, just a minute. I said, what have you been reading on the internet? And uh, he said, well, he said, I've read that you're a liberal and that you focus on the gospels and not on paul's letters i thought that's a very interesting complaint to make isn't it i thought we thought the whole bible is the inspired word of god and um yeah i'm focusing too much on the gospels the story of jesus so as i say that's an interesting thing but actually i understand where he was coming from because particularly from a kind of conservative evangelical background you might not notice it if you 're part of it i didn 't notice it for years, but overwhelmingly sermons are based on paul 's letters and not on the in in the gospels. Often the gospels end up being you know used a lot in Sunday school lessons you know an illustration when preaching to the lost or whatever um, but in terms of looking for substantial stuff about you know what what it is to follow Jesus, then the gospels often are overlooked, which is why actually i found it so satisfying to come into the Anglican Church, into the Church of England, because I mean, it's not true in all sections of the Church, but overwhelmingly the Church of England, as I've experienced it, focuses a great deal on the Gospel readings. And you know, all, nearly all the time, my sermons and sermons that I hear are focused on the Gospels, with obviously references or drawing in uh, stuff from the Hebrew Scriptures or from uh, uh, Paul's letters or whatever. So um, I think that the interesting thing about this is uh, that somehow there's a reluctance to actually engage with the historic Jesus. All the emphasis is on what you might call the Christ of faith rather than on uh, the Jesus of the Gospels, the historical Jesus. So I think there are a number of things. If we are going to rescue Jesus from Christianity and certain kinds of Christianity, I think that one of the things we have to start off doing is to recognize the complete and full-on Jewishness of Jesus, that he was a man of his time, of his tradition, of his culture. Now, we've talked quite a bit on things that Amy Jill Levine has written, over recent times in the Shed, and uh, this book, which I've recommended before, is called The The Misunderstood Jew, The Church and the Scandal of the Jewish Jesus, in which uh, she shares her experience of growing up in an overwhelmingly Christian community somewhere, I don't know, in suburban America. but, but she was Jewish, and so she had to go to a Catholic school. And one of the things she talks about here is a heartbreaking point where a little girl, one of her friends at school, I don't know, they may have been about eight or something, one of her friends said to her, you killed Jesus. And Amy, Jill, AJ, was just, you know, shattered at this suggestion, because uh, as far as she was concerned, he's one of ours. Um, so, yeah, I think that we have, you know, very substantially lost the plot in understanding who Jesus was as a person we've lifted him wrenched him actually out of his historical context and placed him into uh, particularly probably modern Christianity and we've turned him into into a Christian you know so I mean we see him in the New Testament The bit of the Bible that contrasts, by the way, with the Old Testament. And I hate those designations. Of course, they're two separate lots of texts. But I think there must be a better way to talk about it than old and new. Because straight away that says, you know, this one cancels out that one. And the fact of the matter is that Jesus, um, his Bible, his scriptures were the Hebrew scriptures. Um, And, you know, so that was the world... The intellectual world, the spiritual world that, that he lived in. We see Jesus as the founder of something new, Christianity. So, you know, he's seen as part of Christianity instead of part of Judaism. Uh, and yet everything about Jesus is Jewish. He was a man embedded in. In a culture, in a historical moment in time in first century Judaism. More importantly, his message is embedded in Jewish faith and scripture. You know, themes like the kingdom of God that we think Jesus invented and Christians invented, (laughs) you know, they were completely familiar. This was a completely familiar theme to his audience. He gave it a particular spin, he brought a particular content into it, but not something from outside of Judaism. What he was doing was going to the heart of Judaism and bringing people back to that heart and core of the faith that was, you know, what what they were already identified with. Um, so, you know, in biblical times, there wasn't really a thing called Judaism. It's worth remembering that. Uh, i.e. a faith or a religion as a thing or an entity. Um, There were Israelite people with their own understanding of and their own connections with God. Uh, But, you know, there wasn't a sort of separation that this is the religious side of their life, which is Judaism. That came a heck of a lot later. Um, Also, you know, in the early era of the church, Christianity, you know, was not a thing. It took... A long time it looks it, it took centuries to form actually uh, jewish followers of jesus uh, saw this as very much a part of the landscape of their own faith and many non-jewish followers of christ who who came in uh, were people who had sympathy with that faith and so you know jewish faith has always had layers by the way you know circles going out if you like uh, there were people who were you know the kind of hardcore Jews, but then there'd be people who are described in the New Testament, actually, as God-fearers or God-worshippers, pagans, you know, who were sympathetic to the faith of the Israeli people, the Israelite people, and I think an awful lot of Paul's preaching as he travelled around the ancient Near East was directed at those people, the people who were the God-fearers or the God-worshippers. And then, of course, there's this whole thing which Marcus Borg wonderfully brought to us while he was still with us. This, uh, these categories of pre and post Easter, the pre, G- the pre Easter Jesus, and the post Easter Jesus. And sometimes, you know, Jesus Christ, which of course is not like, you know, Christ isn't his surname. Um, you know, Jesus Christ, uh, that Christ is. Is a designation which means the anointed one and so you know more accurately it's Jesus the anointed one but somehow these two words have become signifiers of two different things really and the church has focused its all of its attention on the Christ bit and the Jesus bit as I say is you know nice stories and teachings um, <clears throat> but but that's not where the kind of meat of the word is if you like now we have no direct access to the historical Jesus. He's a figure of history, uh, which is where I think the resurrection comes in because his first followers uh, after Jesus died, testified to experiencing Jesus as a living presence among them, you know. And throughout history and to this day, people uh, attest to to the same thing, to experiencing uh, the living presence of Jesus in their lives and uh, I th- I think to me this is the important thing about the resurrection you know what w- there's a chapter in my book black sheep and prodigals which is talking about the the resurrection and I, and I think I entitled it something like the empty tomb is a distraction because I think you know people get so shirty I mean it's another one of the questions I was asked this week do you believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus well what does that mean you know and were you there or are you just simply going off what you interpret as what what the bible is saying um i think you know we, we end up getting knickers in a twist about what did or didn't happen on a sunday morning 2000 years ago instead of focusing on the big picture which is that the disciples experienced jesus as a living presence with them and that is still true today i would say that jesus is a living presence here in the holy shed and through the centuries people have found that presence to be transformative so two important things here first the historical jesus never asked us to believe in things right there was no through the gospels and this is probably why some people don't like it too much there's no doctrine jesus never introduced any doctrine to people there are no creeds there's no dogma no propositions that people have to, you know, when people came and said, what must I do to have eternal life? Or when he called people to be his followers, he never said to them, you know, here's a little pamphlet with, uh, you know, six things or four spiritual laws or whatever it is that you have to believe in. No, no, He, he basically called people to follow him. So the early followers of Jesus were known rather wonderfully, I think, as people of the way. So that's one thing. Secondly, and by contrast, the church requires us <clears throat> to believe certain things about Christ. You know, that he's the son of God, the second person in the Trinity, and things like that. And if we don't believe and affirm these things, well, in the end, you find you can't be in the club. You know, you can't really be a Christian. Um, we become unorthodox or heretical if we believe something different. And this is where I think we need a radical change in in churches if we are to rescue Jesus if you like from Christianity I need I think we need to start putting the emphasis on discipleship or following Jesus rather than on doctrine and beliefs Um, I'm not for one minute saying that they they don't matter Uh, I've got books and books of doctrine and beliefs here and and I love it all but is that really what matters You know, look at the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, you know, is that there isn't a single word about what to believe in the Sermon on the Mount. Only words about what to do. You know, it's a behavioral manifesto, not a propositional one. And yet three centuries later, the Nicene Creed was invented, which hasn't actually got a single word about what to do. It's only about what to believe. And if you don't believe these things, then you're a heretic. You're unorthodox. You're not part of our club. But there's nothing there at all about this is how you are supposed to behave in the world. This is how we respond to things in the political realm, in the social realm, in the personal realm or whatever, which were all things that Jesus did speak about. Christianity as a belief system basically requires nothing but acquiescence, you know. Uh, Oh, yeah, which boxes do I sign? Yeah, 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 you know. And suddenly we're accepted, you know. Um, Whereas I think Christianity needs to be seen as a way of life, a path to follow, which requires not just acquiescence, this requires a new birth. And there's a word or a term that needs rescuing, by the way. Um, You know, it's now become totally, you know, embedded in a particular culture of of evangelicalism, you know, of Billy Graham crusades and all that kind of thing, being born again. Um, But actually that's not at all what John 3, were. these words came from Jesus, it's not what that's about at all. This is a man uh, who was coming looking to find uh, a a whole new way of looking at the world that Jesus was was all about. And Jesus said, you're going to need a whole new consciousness and that's what new birth is to me. It's about a new consciousness, you know. It's like the word repent, metanoia in the in the Greek, which means to enter into a completely new mind, a new mindset, a new a new consciousness really is the best term I think about it. You know, to, to embrace Christianity as a way of life means to, you know, leave behind the, the, the ego to have new eyes with which to see the world and people in it. It's, it's no wonder, really, I think, that people have prepared to tick a few boxes, to accept fire, you know, four spiritual laws. To, it's no wonder, because actually, that's, that's no problem at all. The problem I find, and I still find it, is trying to work through what it means to live in that new consciousness, to follow the way of Jesus, which is costly and demanding. Take up your cross and follow me, he said. You know, in *How to Be a Bad Christian and a Better Human Being*, my book that I wrote, um, I talk there, and in fact, it's what the whole book is about. Really, what would happen if we stop seeing the word Christian as a noun and think of it as a verb? You know, so not as a as a, a kind of subject sort of thing, but but as a practice. And uh, so, so what would happen if we see the word Christian as being describing a way of being a way of living in the world a spiritual practice as I say rather than as a badge that we were that says I'm, I'm in this club I think it makes a heck of a difference if we begin to work that through and say well what does what does this look like the necessity uh, it is for us I think to break Jesus out of the stained glass windows now i'm not talking literally i mean there's a church just behind the shed here a very beautiful church with some lovely windows and i'm not a vandal i'm not going to go and smash them up but i'm talking about the sort of whole metaphorical dimension to this that we have encased jesus in stained glass windows and i think we need to take jesus as it were out, or rescue him from the stained glass window um to incarnate in our lives his love, his compassion, his hospitality, uh, and and his passion for justice in the world. Um, and, you know, he then makes this thought provoking observation, you know, that uh, one of the big questions, one of the big questions I think that most curious followers of Jesus ask at some point in their lives, and I know I have, is how did Jesus see himself? Well, of course, it's an impossible question, isn't it? No one can get into his head and understand how he thought about himself. But we can look at what we have uh, in the stories about him and the things that he said to try and make some sense of that, you know. So to what extent did he think about himself as the church came to see him, you know, i.e. as the Christ of the creeds and the stained glass windows, as the only begotten son of God, you know, the second person of the Trinity, God made flesh and so on and so forth. Now, there's an interesting thing. There's a British New Testament scholar whose name is James Dunn. And uh, I like the writings of James Dunn. He used to be in Durham. I don't know if he's still there. Um, He's not a man that you would describe as a liberal theologian. Uh, But he argues (coughs) in his work that whilst the term son of God barely crossed the lips of Jesus, which is true throughout the Gospels, Uh, He probably did see himself as God's son. And yet, surprisingly, this is not the same as thinking, necessarily, that he was divine, Dunn says. Uh, After centuries of Christian conditioning, we automatically assume that this is what son of God implies. But at the time of Jesus, um, the phrase was... Not unusual. It was not unknown to them. You know, Jesus, if he stood up and said he was the son of God, that in itself would not be a startling thing as it happens. He didn't do that. Um, but as I say, after centuries of Christian conditioning, this is what we've come to assume that it means. Whereas um, I think that people of his time would have seen the phrase as a way of characterising someone who was thought to be specially commissioned by God, you know, maybe uniquely commissioned by God, uh, or highly favoured by God. Uh, But divine was not necessarily part of that package. And in terms of Jesus' own self-awareness, all we can talk about with any confidence, Dunn states, is of his sense of intimate sonship to God as his father, uh, whose nearest parallel, he said, would place him among the righteous of the wisdom literature, or identify him as an esteemed charismatic rabbi. He certainly understood God as Father in a familiar way that was very unusual at the time, and he taught his disciples to have that too, so it wasn't something he was hanging on to himself. He said, this is how to pray, our Father, and the word is Abba, uh, which is a, a term of endearment. So uh, the idea that Jesus saw himself as the second person in the Trinity, this the, you know the, the Son in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is basically anachronistic you know and incongruous with the religious environment Jesus lived in. A Trinitarian notion of God was foreign basically to the Jewish faith and uh, and the Jewish mentality of, of that time as it is today the Christian apologist Tertullian first used the term Trinity in the early third century, and the doctrine of the Holy Trinity was not established until the first council of Nicaea in 325, um, which is when the church officially declared Jesus to be divine and called him God. It's interesting to know that, isn't it? It wasn't until the fourth century that that was officially laid down in the the, the kind of creeds and, and doctrines of the church. Now, I'm not saying that the Trinity is a bad idea. By the way, I t- preach on it whenever I can, every Trinity Sunday. I love to, you know, lots of lots of preachers don't like it, so they they've often give it me to you to to to, be, to preach about. And I love it because it's it's a hermeneutic, you know, it's a hermeneutical device. It's a way of interpreting a God who is utter mystery. If you take it literally, you end up with a three-headed beast, which is ridiculous. But if we say that it's It's expressing the fact that there is sociability, that there is community within the being of God into which the whole of creation is drawn, including human beings, then we end up with a very different kind of picture and one that I personally can embrace wholeheartedly. It's abundantly clear from the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke in particular, that Jesus himself avoided grand titles and labels about himself. You know, his preferred way of speaking about himself was as the son of man, a term which in his own language and culture denoted a human being in contrast to deity and with special reference to human weakness and frailty. So you could say that, you know, bringing it into our own vernacular today, it was a way of saying, I'm only human. And in a way, that's what happened with Jesus. You know, when someone came and, and described him as good, he said, why do you call me good? No one's good but God. Uh, I've never heard uh, a preacher preach on that particular statement by Jesus, coming from a conservative point of view. The phrase, the son of man, which is not a gendered term, by the way, probably better translated as the human being, appears 82 times in the gospels. Jesus just about never uses the term son of God, but, Um, he does 82 times in the Gospels, and it's only ever in the lips of Jesus, you know, leading to, amongst scholars, uh, an overwhelming consensus that this was a strong element in the speech of the original Jesus, that it's authentic and goes back to the historic Jesus. And yet Christian creeds from the start, uh, in Christian creeds, the, the notion of Jesus as the son of man or the human being really never appears in any creed that i know of or any article of faith in christianity the church traditionally holds that jesus was both human and divine but the concentration on son of god is so overwhelming that it excludes son of man it just becomes a a, actually it's commonly interpreted as saying the same thing which it isn't um So, you know, in much of popular Christian spirituality, this has led to a general tendency to see Jesus as a God-man and not as a real human being, which Jesus spoke of himself as being. For me as a Christian, Jesus is the definitive revelation of God. I automatically gauge every other claim concerning the nature of divinity by what I see in Jesus in the Gospels and what I understand of him in my life and experience and in the community around me. Jesus is my spiritual magnetic north, my guiding star, and the constant focus of my attention. I'm not expecting that everyone in the world should have that mentality, because some people have come out th- through different traditions. But as a Christian, you know, I am an unashamed Jesus freak. Uh, Jesus is my guru, if you like, my master, um, and, you know, the one who I want to follow and emulate in every way that I can. However... I'm far more interested in trying to follow the way of Jesus than in standing around admiring him. You know, one of the most emasculating processes in the history of the Christian gospel is the transformation of the radical Jesus who called people to take up their cross and follow him into the institutional stained glass Christ figure passively worshipped and revered, you know. I don't think you'd never find. Jesus never asked anyone to worship him. That wasn't part of the deal. He asked them to follow him, which is quite a different thing, you know. And um, so I think what we need is to move Christianity in a more humane direction. For that task, we seek a Jesus who is not the omnipotent God in a man suit, you know, but someone like us who looked for God at the centre of his life and called the world to join him in doing that. Incarnation, you know, the notion that God becomes a human being and takes human form, is, I think, one of the most compelling and exciting aspects of Christianity. However, when incarnation is frozen to become a one-off event in the past with the original coming of Jesus, we overlook or diminish the myriad ways that God becomes flesh and blood in our world every single day. The problem, as I see it, is that incarnation is too often embedded in an outmoded vision of a man upstairs sort of God, who chooses to visit the world as a miraculous superhuman hybrid, an omnipotent God in a man suit, as Walter Wink put it. Jesus in this scenario can never be one of us. You know, he's a hybrid, uh, a proper human being teaching us how to be fully human. That's not what Jesus would be according to that particular perspective. But when we begin to think about God as the divine presence in all things, the very ground of our being, the breath of life in all that lives, then incarnation is a constant reality all around, not a one-off event in history. God is no longer a visitor from somewhere far beyond the blue, but the source of life and energy in all that exists. So for me, God is revealed in Jesus in a definitive way. Let me underline that. I believe this was facilitated by his incredible openness and receptivity to God, attested to in his baptism. And it is interesting, by the way, that Mark's gospel, the oldest of the gospels, doesn't have a nativity story. Doesn't, you know, Matthew and Luke have one, Mark, Uh, you know is as I say the oldest gospel which begins with Jesus coming to John for baptism and it was there that he heard this voice of God speaking to him and saying you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased and uh, I think that this to me signified this beautiful man of utter uh, surrender and openness to the spirit of God to the to the life force and, um, and I think that's what, what he calls us to as well, you know. So the whole, whole point of Jesus' life is that a human being, a slob like one of us, as the song says, lived in such a way that people around him believed that they beheld the glory, the divine, working in and through him. And this is both the challenge and the promise of Jesus. If we see him as God in a man suit, we cannot possibly expect to be like him. But if we let go of the idea of God masquerading as a man, you know, his every step predetermined from eternity, we discover the human Jesus who calls us to follow him, not by hoping to be godlike, but by being more fully what we are as human beings. Well, an awful lot of stuff to think about there, hey, guys? So we're going to just pause a moment for a prayer as you perhaps take that in. And this is a prayer that I'll use to introduce us, toasting our brother Jesus. We we give thanks to you, O God, for your love for the world. You look upon us and still name us good. You conceive in us a thousand possibilities and carry us on into the timeless struggle in bringing to birth the reign of love in the world. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who gave hope to ordinary people like us, crashing through the boundaries that separate us from life and from each other. We also give thanks for 10,000 demonstrations of Christly love in our world every moment of every day. Mums and dads sacrificing and doing the best for their families. This is my body, this is my blood. NHS workers and carers giving tirelessly on behalf of those in need of healing or support. This too is my body, this is my blood. Volunteers spending their time freely for all kinds of good causes. This is my body. This is my blood. Artists, poets and musicians making our world more beautiful, helping us to live more mindfully. This is my body. This is my blood. Ordinary folk who go about their mundane lives attentive to friends and strangers and sharing kindness. This too is my body. This is my blood. And so we toast Christ's life, also his death and resurrection, reenacted in our world a million times each day in magnificent and routine demonstrations of sacrificial love. So come, life-giving Spirit of God, renew our minds, refresh our lives, and may no part of us or of the world be lost to your transforming grace. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, if you've got a drink, I invite you to join me now in a toast. And um, really all the words have been said. Here's a toast to Jesus Christ, a man utterly open and yielded to God, a man who invites us to follow his way, the way of truth and life. So... Here's to Jesus. Lachaim, And there you go. That's about it, really. If you like the Holy Shed, you like what I'm doing here, then you can support us by buying us a coffee or a whiskey or whatever. You just need to go to the coffee site. The link is there on your screen. It's also always at the top of the... um, posts on the holy shed facebook page thank you so much guys for all the support you give us not just by buying us coffees and the like but by the love and support and kind words that you send to us often we appreciate that so much so uh this week just to let you know on wednesday i am leading a soul space hosted by st hethelberger's uh, center for reconciliation and peace it's a 12:30 in in the, in, in, the, in the afternoon in the afternoon it is isn't it it is afternoon pm um, and you can find details of that and how to link to it on the St. Athelberger's uh, website and I'd love to have you join in if you can and so the blessing of God the eternal good will of God the shalom and salam of God the wildness and warmth of God be among us and between us now and always amen amen well i'm going to finish today with uh, a song which is by carrie newcomer you're familiar with her she's been here in the shed many times lovely wonderful quaker woman and magnificent performer from the states and this is a book called room at the table because i believe that is the core of the message that jesus was all about and which you know we need to be about to his table is not a table of exclusion but a table of inclusion so enjoy this and have a great week you know be kind to people around about you be kind to yourselves stay human and i'll see you soon bye
1: Let our hearts not be hardened to those living on the margins. There is room at the table for everyone. This is where it all begins. This is how we gather in. There is room at the table.